Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. It's Amit. Thank you for joining us for the Brunwell Chronicles. In this extraordinary series, we learn about the history of cardiovascular medicine directly from Dr. Eugene Brunwald. These stories of yesterday shed light on where to go tomorrow. In this sixth and final chapter, we discuss triple threats, randomized controlled trials, textbooks, and digital education. Now, I know I keep saying this, but this is one of my absolute favorite discussions from the perspective of an educator. Something he said touched me deeply. And on the topic of all the work he's done with textbooks, he said, That is as gratifying to me personally as the idea of that velocity of contraction is an important determinant of oxygen consumption. I think they're both equal. They're both extremely important. But I think the fact that through a textbook, you could have a doctor do something better to a patient. You've never seen the doctor. You never will see him or her. And obviously, you'll never see the patient who's benefited by this. But that is gratification that I have from the textbook. As educators, I can't tell you how much it means for us to hear Dr. Bunwald say these incredible words. Yeah, I think he was talking about the incredible impact you can have as a medical educator. As cardio nerds, we're just very excited for this burgeoning era where there is a fast-growing role for medical education, digital scholarship in the arena of cardiovascular medicine. So to all my friends and colleagues and mentors who consider themselves as educators and who consider it a calling to impart knowledge to another, I hope you enjoy this very special discussion. For education truly is one of our greatest duties. And if we think back to our Hippocratic Oath, where we all took a promise to, and I'll quote with some creative liberty, to hold him or her who taught me this art equally dear to me as my parents, to be a partner in life with them, and to fulfill their needs when required, to look upon their offerings as equals to my own siblings, and to teach them this art if they shall wish to learn it without fee or contract, and that by the set of fools, lectures, and every other mode of instruction, including podcasts and social media, I will impart a knowledge of the art to my own children and those of my teachers and to students bound by this contract and having sworn this oath to the law of medicine. So with this episode, let's raise a toast to medical educators everywhere. As we take in this breathtaking series, please remember that Cardio Nerds is an independent fellow-founded platform with the goal to democratize cardiovascular education. You can support the mission by subscribing to and rating the show, donating via Patreon, getting Cardinerd swag on Teespring, and sharing your love for cardiology on social media. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Dr. Brunwald, I'd like to take you back to 1968 when you took a position at the University of California, San Diego, my medical school alma mater, as oh, the first... Oh, really? Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, they... Oh, wow. Hey. <laughs> And, you know, you, you were the first chairman of medicine and helped yeah. build the, the new medical school there. You know, you left the NIH at the time. You remarked how you wanted to be closer to clinical medicine. Specifically, yeah. you had a high admiration for the, the triple threats like Donald Selden, who yeah. was a chairman of medicine at UT Southwestern. Yeah. You know, excellent clinicians, esteemed researchers and skillful teachers. 
Can you speak to what drew you to UCSD and how developing triple threat physicians became a core part of your mission? And, and how do we continue to support the development of triple threats today? Well, so I was extremely happy at the NIH. And the analogy that I've used, it's like if steak is your favorite food, I had steak three times a day, seven days a week. And I felt that I wanted to continue research. But there was this big world out there, and I wanted to get into education more. I had an appointment at uh, Georgetown. I was actually a clinical full professor at Georgetown, and I made general medical rounds for a couple of months a year. Uh, so there was there was a part of me that was like the Eugene Brownwald that went to medical school 20 years earlier, 1948, guy who was going to be an internist, internal medicine. That light had not gone out. And I was interested in medical education, which was undergoing radical change. So UCSD was a gleam in the eye. It was uh, in the, the most beautiful town in the country, La Jolla, California. It was the ideas behind the school were very, very enticing. Namely, the Department of Medicine would be responsible for teaching physiology, pharmacology, and microbiology. There would be departments. Surgery was going to teach anatomy. Pathology was a separate department. So with my background in physiology and being interested in physiology and medicine and tying the two together, this was a natural. And so that was very exciting. And um, I learned all the tricks in the book of becoming, of being a chairman and all the secrets, the secret handshakes and stuff like that. And it was a very, very interesting experience. But I went from the youngest to the oldest medical school four years later. Wow. Dr. Bronwell, in 1971, you wrote an editorial entitled Direct Coronary Vascularization, a plea not to let the genie escape from the bottle. Cabbage was becoming increasingly popular and offered to a wide range of patients with little data to show its effectiveness in different cohorts. As treatment options now truly existed, you called for randomized controlled trials to assess effectiveness of treatment strategies, and so began your storied and continued involvement in randomized controlled trials, which we alluded to earlier, from the first TIMI trials comparing thrombolytics to evaluating an early invasive strategy in acute MI. Is there a trial that you're particularly fond of? Of the trials that I've been involved in, the trial that I'm most fond of is TIMI-22, which is an early trial called PROVE-IT. And what we proved is that in patients who are post-ACS, who recover from ACS, you want to get the LDL below 70 with statins. Uh, we studied ATORVA-80, against uh, Brava 40 and ATORVA 80, the difference in LDL was about 20, between 20 and 25 
milligrams per deciliter. And the, the outcome was uh, substantially better. And I think that changed the guidelines. And the reason I feel so positive about that trial is because it changed the way medicine was practiced. I mean, you know, you can write a lot of papers. They can get into the best journals and so forth. And they, at the end, yeah, they, they're like bricks to help build the building. But they don't really change anything. I mean, that, that paper that I'm so proud of in 1971, the uh, paper on uh, infarct size in dogs. I mean, yes, I'm very proud of that because it gave voice to a new idea. But I think the difference here was it changed the way people practice medicine. Of course, now 70 is too high and, you know, we go down to 50 and even below that. But I think the impact that it had at that time, 100 was considered to be uh, the goal. And it changed the goal from 100 to 70. And that's a huge difference. So, Dr. Brunwald, in 1978, you took a year-long sabbatical from the Brigham to work on the first edition of Brunwald's heart disease. At the same time, you were coordinating Harrison's internal medicine, and you actually had to designate different rooms in your house, the Harrison's room and the heart disease room, so you could make sure that you had your correspondence and drafts straight. You know, these are some of our fundamental texts of internal medicine and cardiology, and they've been staples for students, trainees, faculty for years. But there's also been a fundamental change in the way trainees acquire information. And there still remains this underlying thirst for understanding the mechanism of disease. In this context, what role do you see medical textbooks serving trainees going forward? Well, I think that textbooks are not as important today as they were when I was a student and the resident, because things are moving much faster. I'm in the midst of working on the 12th edition of my textbook of cardiology, and I get galley proofs of material that I submitted three months ago to the publisher. And I've got to change, you know, 10% of that. I struggled with a chapter on, uh, on acute coronary syndromes. And uh, the, now the new guidelines have come out since uh, I submitted that chapter, as you know, the 2020 guidelines. So on the other hand, I think that the way to get information, if you're learning if you're a student, if you're a resident, you, you can't do it by just getting little snatches of information. You've got to be able to sit down and learn about the natural history of something or the mechanism of something. And that's why I think, interestingly, the two textbooks that I've been involved in, Harrison's, which I worked for 12 editions, and Heart Disease, which is not a in its 12th edition, are doing very well. I, I think more Europe and in Asia than in the United States. But that's fine. I mean, I think people are reading it. I get letters uh, where, you know, that particularly from a group of cardiologists in Iran, they say, distinguished Professor Brownwald, we love your textbook. It is our equivalent of a Bible, uh, but uh, and your book is the foundation. However, and they will list 15 errors, 
and I go back to the book, which is 2,500 pages and has like 1,600 figures and tables, and they're always right. Correct on everyone. Yes, this has gone through three people reading it, and it was missed because the people who read it are human. Humans are not perfect. So what does that tell me? It tells me that there are people in Iran to whom this means something. And that is, I have to tell you the truth, that is as gratifying to me personally as the idea of that velocity of contraction is an important determinant of oxygen consumption. I think they're both equal. They're both extremely important. But I think the fact that through a textbook, you can have a doctor do something better to a patient. You've never seen the doctor. You never will see him or her. And obviously, you'll never see the patient who's benefited by this. But that is is gratification that I have from the textbook. Dr. Brunwell, it's so heartwarming to hear you say that. Sometimes we get emails from our listeners about how much it's meant to them to get learning and teachings from the podcast. And and so it's just such a pleasure for us to be able to share your teachings, your history with our audience. And it's such an incredible time and space where it's like the the traditional modalities for sharing information meets the digital modalities, which we've seen, especially within the past COVID pandemic era with the rise of webinars and podcasts. There's synergy. One cannot replace the other. You still need to go back to get the foundations of the information, to get the whole picture and get supplemented from the digital space. Well, actually, I have been working for about uh, 12 years with adding new information to the electronic version of my textbook. And we have two types of things. We have late-breaking clinical trials, which get in within 24 hours of uh, presentation. And we have something that's called hot off the press, where I, I have a medical writer in Canada I worked with this uh, lady for 12 years, and uh, I identify the uh, the article. Before I see it, I see that uh, I, I get the table of contents of the major journals, and I guess what's going to be important. And she gets them like a journalist. She can't release them until they're published. But we have that for release, and it gets into the book. And she places it. She places the summary, sends it back to me. I review it. I edit it. It goes to the publisher, and she places it into the paragraph of the electronic version of the book where it belongs. So this is a sort of a hybrid. That's amazing. Well, Dr. Bronwald, speaking with you today has been a great honor, and we're so humbled that you took the time to talk with us and our listeners. In our education, the four of us have benefited from your enduring influence on the field of cardiology. Your mom was absolutely right when she said that the NIH was lucky to have you, and and every institution that you've been at, for that matter, has been lucky to have you, and, and we too have been lucky to sit here with you today and hear your story. And we just thank you so much for sharing a piece of your story and a piece of your journey with us today. Well, it's nice to have been with you and you asked the interesting questions. And I hope this will be uh, useful to your 
audience. Thank <laughs> you.